Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The clock is ticking on this year's legislative session and lawmakers are busy passing a number of bills. So what's left for them to address? Well, major property tax relief and full day kindergarten, some of the biggest talkers of the last few months. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Representative Fred Wood joins me to discuss the state of rural health care in Idaho, as well as his views on the legislature. Then Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press joins me to discuss where lawmakers are on key bills. But first, Democratic Governor hopeful Shelby Ronstad learned this week that he will not be on the primary ballot this May. As Idaho Reports first reported over the weekend, Ronstad has affiliated as a Republican voter since at least 2014 so he could participate in GOP primaries. Ronstad's campaign told Idaho Reports they thought he had affiliated as a Democrat before announcing his run for governor six months ago, but public records show he was still a Republican. So here's where it gets interesting. Idaho Code says a candidate must be affiliated with a party. Ronstadt's campaign says it doesn't specify the party has to be the same one they're running for. The Secretary of State says the state has never interpreted the code any other way. So at this point, the Ronstadt campaign could file a lawsuit or could attempt a write-in campaign to get on the general election ballot. We'll continue to follow this story. Watch for updates on our website at IdahoPTV.org slash Idaho Reports. Ada County jurors convicted another gubernatorial hopeful this week. Independent candidate Ammon Bundy was sentenced to one year of probation and a fine of more than $3,000 after jurors found him guilty of two of the three misdemeanor charges he faced. Bundy was charged with misdemeanor trespassing as well as resisting and obstructing officers following a series of incidents last year at the Idaho State House. The conviction came just days after Bundy was arrested again for trespassing during a protest at a Meridian Hospital following the state's Child Protective Services taking custody of his campaign manager's infant grandchild, who was reportedly severely underweight. Those protests have continued at hospitals and state and county government buildings every day since. Governor Brad Little and Attorney General Lawrence Wasden filed a lawsuit on Monday to remove protesters camping on state property across the street from the state house. The protesters have been there since January in an attempt to draw attention to Idaho's housing crisis. Little cited destruction of public property and health concerns as a reason he wants the protest to end. On Friday, Idaho Reports visited with one of the protesters who goes by Razor, who said he's been homeless for two years, and in that time, he's seen the real effects of Idaho's affordable housing shortage. We're tired of, we can't even go and find a, a hole somewhere in a doorway alcove to go and end up laying our head and trying to catch a couple hours of sleep because we can't afford the housing. Yeah, there's housing programs. But you know what the problem with them is? The list is a mile long to go and end up getting into the two or three places that end up being available. 
In legislative news on Wednesday, the House passed the state's budget to fund higher education institutions with a 46 to 22 vote and on the first try. That's a big change from the last two legislative sessions when lawmakers voted down the budgets the first go around, largely over concerns about social justice programs taught at the universities. This year's budget includes $338 million from the state's general fund for Idaho's four-year higher education institutions and will allow those schools to freeze tuition again for in-state undergraduate students. A controversial bill that passed the House last week that would ban gender-affirming medical treatments for transgender children will not move forward in the Senate. This week, the Senate GOP issued a statement saying the bill is an overreach of government and the legislation's current language could be interpreted to apply to medically necessary treatment for children that's completely unrelated to gender confirmation. On Wednesday, the House of Representatives took up an early childhood literacy bill, which would allow school districts to fund full-day kindergarten, among other programs. But after a short debate, the House put off the vote for Friday and then again until next week. We'll have more with Betsy later in the show. Meanwhile, some conservative legislators continue to attempt bringing bills to the House floor that did not get hearings in committee. Gentlemen from 434, for what purpose do you rise? Mr. Speaker, inflation's out of control. Let's call up House Bill 448, give households $300 million of grocery tax relief. Gentleman from four. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. For the 30th time, I move that the Ways and Means Committee be excused from reporting House Bill 448 forthwith. Lady from 11. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I call House Bill 492. Lady from one. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I call House Bill 496. Lady from 35, for what purpose do you rise? Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. Um, I call up House Bill 491. Gentleman from 34, for what purpose do you rise? Mr. Speaker, while the gentleman from 4 may joke about this, Idaho families are hurting. Let's go, uh, let's call up House Bill 493. Lady from Watton. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'd like to call up a bill that's really important to me, and it's uh, House Bill 662. Uh, lady from 11. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I would like to call House Bill 484. Gentleman from 13. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I move that we call. I'm just kidding. I have an introduction, Mr. Speaker. For what purpose does a good lady from 35 rise? Uh, Mr. Speaker, I call up House Bill 462, Defend the Guard. For what purpose do you rise, good gentleman? Thank you, Mr. 34. Speaker. I think you were talking to me. Uh, the, uh, we also have an opportunity to end abortion uh, For what in purpose Idaho. do you rise? I call Make the House motion. Bill 460 from the House of Ways and Means Committee. None of those efforts have been successful. The House on Monday passed a bill that would allow family members of a woman who had an abortion to sue the abortion provider. The Texas-style abortion bill would also allow the family members of a rapist to sue the provider as well should the woman be impregnated due to rape or incest. In a few months, that the Supreme Court may actually overturn Roe Wade Casey and send it back to the states. In the meantime, I hope that happens too, but in the meantime, we can actually do something that's working. My experience in Washington, D.C. was one of hope. This right now is one of actuality, and I do hope that you will give it your green light. Thank you. I understand that, that a, uh, someone who has committed a rape would not be able to uh, sue if an abortion were to take place. Would a family member of said rapist be able to sue? Would they have standing? 
Down to 21. Thank you. If it is the uh, parents, siblings, aunts and uncles, grandparents, then yes. A victim of rape or incest should never be forced to bear a child, and this legislation acknowledges that. The problem is that the exception is so cumbersome that it renders itself useless, but we should ask ourselves if an abortion is acceptable in those circumstances, why can't we trust patients to make those decisions in other cases for their deeply personal reasons? Be aware that the doctor is being sued, not the mom. <laughs> the mom may be one of the plaintiffs. Um, blatantly, un blatantly unconstitutional, it's already made two, the Texas bill has already made two visits to the Supreme Court. We heard in testimony in the, uh, in the committee, we heard testimony here today that uh, this will end many abortions in Idaho. So I appreciate that testimony. Uh, let's save some babies, thank you. The bill passed the House on a 51 to 14 vote, but not without a protest in the gallery. It now heads to the governor. On Monday, the House passed a bill to limit the forms of identification people could use for same-day voter registration, as well as prohibit the use of an affidavit for same-day registration. There are still going to be thousands of people in Idaho, legal, perfectly legal voters who will be barred from registering under this statute. Uh, again, getting back to my mother, who... Um, died last year, but she could not have registered under this bill. She did not have a utility bill in her name. She did not have a rental agreement in her name. Um, and she certainly could not have gotten an affidavit signed by her parent, uh, who was long dead. Um, so there are going to be senior citizens all over the state. Um, there are going to be all kinds of people whose, for example, utility bill might be in their spouse's name. Maybe their spouse paid the property tax bill. Um, there's a very limited number of documents that can be produced um, that I think many thousands of legal people will not be able to produce. Every one of us are already registered to vote in this chamber. Everybody we know in this state are already registered to vote. They are currently in the Secretary of State's master database, so if you move, your information is going to travel with you. And when you look at the voter ID registration card, when you move, it asks where you were previously at. So it's because of the, you know, you're followed, you're tracked around the state as you move. This is not every senior will now have to come up with all these documents or the lost birth certificate because they're already in the system. So to, to throw that out that now everybody in the state has got to re-register under these new uh, guidelines is, is disingenuous. That is not true. The bill now heads to the Senate, which has previously turned down similar legislation. The WAMI program places Idaho medical students at the University of Washington's medical school and provides them with clinical training within WAMI's five-state area, Washington, Wyoming, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho. Idaho currently funds 40 new students each year for the program, which is a key part of addressing the rural doctor shortage in Idaho and throughout the Northwest. But it's not the only answer. On Friday, retiring House Health and Welfare Chairman Fred Wood joined me to discuss the WAMI program and rural health care. Thanks so much for joining us today. I wanted to ask you about the WAMI program. We're at 40 seats each year right now. Is it enough? Well, first of all, Melissa, thank you for having me today. I, I greatly appreciate it. I've always uh, loved coming and, and uh, talking to you and, and your predecessors here. Um, we do have 40 WAMI seats. Uh, we passed a concurrent resolution um, suggesting that we get more seats in the future. It would be nice to have as many as 60 to 70 seats. 
we do have 40 whammy seats. I believe we have about 10 or 12 seats at the University of Utah. So we are getting fairly close to where we should be uh, with a state population of 1.8 million people with respect to um, medical school slots. Um, we've done well. Um, those two medical schools are great medical schools. Uh, be hard for us to achieve that same uh, recognition and caliber of medical education, um, but we could certainly use more. There was a bill that passed the House earlier this session that would have said if, if a student in Idaho gets a whammy seat, then they should sign a contract. They need to sign a contract that says they will practice in Idaho for at least four years or they'll have to pay the state back. How do you feel about that legislation and is it going to hurt the, the state's chances of recruiting students for those seats? I think it's going to be a trade-off uh, in this respect. Um, we know that uh, certain people don't want anything to do with rural medicine, primary care medicine, et cetera. Uh, they want to become specialist or subspecialist. Um, Idaho, I think, uh, is fairly well represented in that category, but we certainly are underrepresented in primary care uh, specialties, family practice, pediatrics, et cetera. Um, so I, I think that you're going to see a little change in who actually does apply for the whammy program. Uh, now there's certainly uh, uh, young people who live in Idaho that uh, certainly want to come back to uh, our larger metropolitan areas that want to practice orthopedics or some form of surgery or whatever um, and would be happy to sign a contract like that. Uh, but. Uh, I, I think the caliber of um, person who applies will still be the same. I think their interest will be a little bit different. I initially was opposed to that a number of years ago. Um, I can see where this is a, a balanced bill in this respect. You can pay that back by doing a residency here in Idaho also. Um, so. The only thing the better in the bill would have been to, you could pay back a, um, or part of it if actually you're doing a family practice residency or a pediatric residency and intended to come back here. Um, but that's, that's the only uh, thing. But I, I supported that bill. You know, rural health care has long been an issue in Idaho, being able to recruit and retain not just physicians, but registered nurses. And we've lost a whole lot of registered nurses in rural Idaho as they've moved to more metropolitan areas. What's the solution? Um, well, you don't allow uh, doctors to get married until they finish their residency and move back to rural Idaho <laughs> and then get married. So, <laughs> oh, good, okay, good luck legislating that. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, you know, the legis that's another topic we can get to. The legislature has tried and tried to legislate morality and good parenting and those kinds of things or common sense and it just never works. But the fact is, is, with respect, and all kidding aside now, with respect to getting people to come to rural anywhere to practice, an awful lot of that depends upon their family their wife and their children. And, you know, 
where a family wants to live is a family decision, not necessarily a physician's decision, and rightly so. Um, and uh, rural medicine is a whole different animal uh, than medicine um, in Boise. For instance, Burley, uh, as an example, you know, if you live in Burley, Idaho, you have access to um, healthcare about 35 and a half to 40 hours a week. The rest of the time, your only access to healthcare, basically, traditionally, has been the emergency department. Um, which is expensive. Which is expensive. And not ideal. Not ideal, et cetera. Uh, I think that's one of the main reasons that we are not seeing our rural areas grow as much as we're seeing our uh, uh, urban areas grow. Um, and there's multiple facets like that. But that's, so I don't know that there's a magic bullet to solving that, but getting them to do residency programs in the state of Idaho in primary care uh, is the best uh, solution so far. So expanding the residencies to the extent that we can is probably the number one thing that we should be attempting to do. Now, you have been chairman of the Health and Welfare Committee in the House for, this is your 10th session. 10 year. Doing that. Um, in that time, we've seen the establishment of the state-based insurance exchange, uh, voter-driven Medicaid expansion, um, red tape reduction, uh, pandemic, and so many different healthcare issues. Looking back, what's the state of healthcare now versus in 2013 when you took over that seat? I think the thing that, the first thing I thought of well, when I entertain that question is from a legislative perspective, is what people are trying to do with healthcare. You know, unfortunately, uh, today in America, way too many people are living off of the political system. They are literally employed full time in the political system. So all issues are immediately monetized and politicized for fundraising, et cetera. And we're seeing that in healthcare in spades uh, to issues that are brought to the legislature. Like what? Um, abortion, okay? Not related to healthcare, but guns, et cetera. Those kinds, uh, those are big fundraising issues um, but it's, but it's not healthcare, you know, that's not what we should be trying to do with healthcare in the state legislature. Um, what we should be trying to do is to increase access. We should be trying to, to, we have excellent healthcare in the state of Idaho, but what we really need is, is we need some infrastructure. We need broadband, um, related to healthcare, um, for telemedicine access. For telemedicine access, et cetera. Now, you and I have spoken previously about telemedicine isn't the sole answer for access to all aspects of medicine. But one of the greatest shortages we have in the state of Idaho is behavioral health uh, services. And that is, you know, that is the poster child, literally, for access to patient care in, in behavioral health is telehealth, okay? And, and I don't mean just in Idaho, but across state boundaries uh, and throughout the nation. 
I have so much more with Representative Wood, including his take on how the legislature has changed since he was first elected in 2006. It's a great conversation, and you'll find that full interview at youtube.com slash Idaho Reports. As we near the likely end of the session, lawmakers are passing bills left and right, but there's still a lot left on the table. Joining me to discuss that is Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press. Betsy, real quick, status update on some of those big talkers from the beginning of the session. Property tax relief, where are we? We are not very far. <laughs> um, a couple of small pieces have been going through. There is a bill on the House calendar that never had a hearing from Representative Moyle that was just introduced and that would change the funding for public defense by um, supposedly with the aim of shifting it from counties to the state, but it would actually hit cities and counties for the majority of that, or really from all, for all of it, based on revenues they're supposed to receive from revenue sharing in the future. Um, um, that bill, who knows, maybe rushed through at the last minute, as so many other things we're seeing are. Um, there was a circuit breaker bill that had passed the House from Representative Charlie Shepard, just came out of the Senate committee yesterday. The two sides were trying to reach a compromise. They apparently did not. They're going with the House version, which does less to soften the blow of last year's House Bill 389 on needy seniors who are set to lose the circuit breaker. So with a week left, is there a chance that we might still see something substantial on property tax? I guess it depends how you define substantial. Um, Representative Moyle says his brand new bill would be $50 million in property tax relief. So that sounds kind of substantial, um, but it's uh, there had been a huge package kicked around for $750 million in property tax release, relief, but that relied on raising the sales tax to almost 8%. That has died. Um, really, the property tax relief discussion was taken off the table when the legislature immediately passed a huge income tax cut at the beginning of the session, um, soaking up all the available revenue. There were predictions that's what it would do. That does appear to be what it did. Literacy, uh, and which could fund full day kindergarten for school districts that choose to do so. We covered that at the beginning of the show. There was some movement on Friday after the House put off the vote on that bill for next week. What's the latest? Well, a brand new version was introduced in the House Ways and Means Committee. It was introduced so quickly after the House adjourned on Friday that I didn't get there before it happened and neither did both of its sponsors. I talked to them in the hallway about that afterwards and what it does. Um, they think that it cleans it up a little, makes some things more clear, and hopefully will resolve enough of the concerns to get it through the House. It still does basically the same things as the Senate bill that passed with only two no votes, but it makes a few changes, including incorporating some requirements for transparency on supplemental uh, property tax levies for schools of all types, that they would have to state very clearly what they're for, what it's going to be spent on, and what amounts. Um, and that was in another House bill that has already passed but hasn't passed the Senate. And so the thought was that that might help. There are also a few changes giving a little more um, uh, clarity on what the money can be spent on as far as literacy intervention. And to be clear, it's not just funding full-day kindergarten. There are any number of early childhood literacy programs that this could fund, including optional full-day kindergarten. Like all the bills that have been proposed this year, this does not in any way change the law about full-day kindergarten in Idaho. What it does is it provides more funding. Right now, school districts can provide full-day kindergarten. They can offer that if they want to, but they just don't have the funding. And so they've patched together all these different ways to pay for it, and almost half of the school districts are, are doing it on a... a, a widespread basis, um, this would provide a lot more funding and give some direction in how it could be spent. 
these are issues that have been discussed for several months now. There are a lot of seemingly new ideas that the legislature has taken up just in the past few days as we're nearing the end of the session, and you've been covering them. What is going on? I think kind of the biggest one that stands out, and, and here we are on Friday, and I've just covered this House debate, is regarding the courts and selection of judges in Idaho and the makeup of the Idaho Judicial Council. Legislation has come out very late in the session. The House just passed a bill after a very impassioned debate um, that ran into the noon hour today. The bill was just introduced this week. It would make massive changes to the Judicial Council. It would give the governor the authority to appoint basically 10 of 11 members. Right now there are seven members and the governor appoints three. It would allow the governor to reject a slate of nominees for judge and get a whole new one with no repeats. Basically it shifts the power um, of the executive branch over the judicial branch over the objections of the courts who have just announced plans to convene a study, a study committee over the next year to involve the legislature, the courts, the public in the best way to make changes to the system, which has been in place since 1967. There were a lot of concerns expressed in the House. At the end of the debate, Representative Mike Moyle, the sponsor of the bill, said, quit whining and just vote for the bill, and it passed. Now, and, and I need to disclose, I haven't been covering this bill because my husband does work for the courts, and so I've been staying away from it. But for those who aren't familiar with the Judicial Council, what role do they play in the judiciary? The Judicial Council has two roles. It nominates judges, uh, candidates for the, the governor to choose from to appoint for judicial vacancies, and it disciplines judges. And all of the debate has been focusing on the nominating and selection process. But big changes in, in the Judicial Council would also change who is disciplining judges, and these changes would put far more attorneys on this council than there are now. There were other issues that lawmakers took up late in the week, including a so-called coronavirus pause bill. What is that? That's right, and that bill has now passed the House. It's on its way to the governor's desk. It passed the Senate yesterday. This is the culmination of all the talk that we've heard, especially in November and through this session about legislators' desire to forbid Idaho businesses and employers from having vaccine requirements for their employees or customers. And that is exactly what this bill would do, but it would do it for just one year. That's why they're calling it a pause. Senator Winder, the lead sponsor, said, it's, you know, it's not a long-term change in policy. We're just taking a pause here. For one year, you couldn't require any of this. There are businesses opposing this. Um, it does have exceptions. The exceptions are for those who are covered by federal law, including healthcare workers and healthcare employers and uh, businesses who employ people who are required to travel to places where vaccines are required or to enter work areas where vaccines are required and for existing contractual arrangements. Well, they can't change those anyway under the Idaho Constitution, but those are the exceptions, they're pretty narrow. And this comes as we find out that test positivity in the state has dropped to an all-time low over the course of the pandemic, 2.5%, which is remarkable um, and, and great news. And it's even lower in some counties, like Ada County is 2%. Uh, great news. So it, it seems like the conversation around COVID restrictions can happen now in a much more, in a much less tense way. 
Certainly what we're seeing with this bill is an agreement between the House and Senate, and that's something we hadn't seen earlier. The House was pushing for much, much more far-reaching requirements and actually passed a bill to make it a crime for any employer to even inquire about an employee's vaccine status. And so this replaced this that bill, and Representative Charlie Shepard, the sponsor of that bill, spoke in favor of the coronavirus pause bill in the House today and said they've all reached agreement. Real quick, yes or no, are they going to be adjourned by the end of next week? They are scrambling as hard as they can to make it happen. If it does, it will be very, very messy, just like what we saw today. Can't wait. Betsy Russell, <laughs> the Idaho Press, thanks for joining us. And thank you for watching. We have much more online. You'll find the link at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. We'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.